Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon and welcome to this week's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. We are recording this at the end of the first week in May, which is usually a moment for a big exhale from seniors across the country, but a moment that is a little more uncertain this year of all years. We hope you're able to stay safe and healthy despite all the uncertainty. Now, I'm your host, Ian Fisher, and I've been without a haircut for about two and a half months now. And as this period of social isolation goes on longer and longer, well, my hair is going to follow suit. So let that be a plug to you listeners of our radio show to get to our social media and check out the videos we've been recording of all of our radio show segments. You can find them at our facebook.com slash college coach page. And you can keep an eye on all the changes among all of our hosts and guests during these uncertain times. All right, enough of that. Uh, We've got a guest here and a show to do, and I'm excited to do it. Joining me for our first segment is Lauren DiProspero. She is our in-house expert for everything related to medical school admissions, which puts her in very high demand. So we're lucky to be able to welcome her to the show today. Welcome, Lauren. Hi, Ian. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Uh, yeah, great day so far. Um, beautiful sunny day here in Portland. And now before we get into the meat of this segment, um, with all that's going on right now, we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about what college students can do um, with respect to medical school. But I wonder if you can just give us maybe a brief summary or overview of some of the things that have been happening in medical school at this point, some of the, the turmoil with among med- medical school admissions, uh, just mm-hmm. for our listeners who are maybe unfamiliar with some of the effects um, that have taken hold lately. Yeah, absolutely. So similar with undergraduate, the um, standardized testing has been a little bit of a mess <laughs> yeah. with many dates having been canceled. Um, the standardized test for the medical school is called the MCAT. Um, they've released more dates, schools have become more flexible, not in that they're test optional, that is not the direction that medical schools are going, but they're having more flexibility in terms of extending dates and deadlines, accepting applications without the MCAT. This is school by school, so if there is someone listening out there thinking about medical school, you want to be looking at the schools on your list to make sure what your plan is matches up with what their policies allow for. Mm -hmm. But there's been a lot of shifting around. I think if more, (laughs) you know, tests get canceled, there'll be even more shifts in policy. So it's been really interesting to see. And it'll be interesting to see what impact this has on the students who decide to apply to medical school this year, and how that all all plays out. Yeah, I mean, I think big open ended questions, certainly. And I think did you and Beth, you did a whole segment, not for the radio show, but just for video. Exactly. on some of the impacts of standardized testing. So, yeah. so that's a little plug for you to go and find that uh, video. You can find it on our Facebook page. But for today, we're going to turn our attention to what students can do now if they are interested in medical school. And we want to focus especially on students who are currently in college. So usually we look at high school students. And we might touch them a little bit at the last end of the segment, but we want to talk a little bit about college students. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the things that you would advise some college students to be thinking about right now, if medical school is still one of their primary goals, and they're still angling for that outcome. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, one of the biggest things that I recommend, or two of the biggest things that I recommend that are sort of short term goals to be doing is one to be asking for letters of recommendations from professors that maybe they had this semester, maybe they had the last semester, but try and remain fresh in the minds of those letters of recommendation. Maybe mm. the PIs in their lab or other mentors that they were planning on asking for recommendations from. They can talk to their college to find out, you know, do they have a place to hold those letters of recommendation? Is it with a career office? Is it with a pre-health office? Many schools will offer that to students. And you just want to make sure that you're fresh in the minds of those recommenders. You know, don't want them to forget all of the wonderful things that you've been doing before you had to leave campus. That's right. And then the other thing is to do the best that you can in your classes. You know, some colleges have gone past fail and many medical schools have released policies 
that allow for that during the winter or spring term, but especially since many are facing down finals at this point of the year, continue to try and do the hard, the best that you can do. If you're getting grades, it's obviously still gonna go into your GPA. There are two GPAs for medical school that are important, the cumulative GPA and the, the BCPM, biochemistry, physics, and math GPA. So if you are getting that you know, grade, strive for that, still try and do well because these professors might be writing letters of recommendation for you still, but try and end um, and those um, as strong as you can. BCPM, that sounds terrifying. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm really glad I never had to worry about that at any point. Um, mm-hmm. Now you mentioned letters of recommendation and, and one yeah. of the things that I'm sort of curious about is how would you advise students who are thinking about um, maybe this, this current semester's teachers versus teachers from prior semesters. I mean, it might be that a class that they're taking right now is more relevant to the medical school admission process, or maybe it's a more challenging class, but students are also in a position where they're not as connected with the faculty members as maybe they might have been when they're on campus in a more traditional setting. So how do you encourage students to think about making choices with that kind of balance? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends upon where they are in college. Uh, When they're planning on applying to medical school, is this professor a professor that you may have researched with in the past, might research with them in the future? There are a lot of decisions that go into who you're going to ask and why you're going to ask that person. If you're in a 300 person lecture, probably asking that professor is not the best idea. If you're in a small class or in, you know, in labs with a professor, you know, distinct from research, obviously, you know, really thinking through, does it make sense to ask this professor? Because you still might have that connection. That connection might have been established before, and maybe you've kept up with them. So it can still be somebody that you ask. I very highly recommend that students reach out to their pre-health advising Hmm. to find out a couple of things, right? One, to help think through in your individual circumstance, um, does this person make sense to ask for a letter of recommendation? And then also to find out if the school has what's called a committee letter. So medical schools will accept a committee letter from pre-health offices. Not every college has this. And so the reason I bring it up is that it's possible that your school has specific types of letters that they're going to want to see from research or from professors or from whatever it might be. They're going to lay out what they want for those committee letters. If your school doesn't have a committee letter, then you're just going to want to go based upon the recommendations of medical schools that you're looking to go to, right? So if they're gonna accept seven letters of recommendation and they want at least two to be from professors, thinking through do professors from this semester make sense in that context? And your pre-health advisor can help you given where you are in the process. So you're sort of, I I appreciate the invocation of the pre-health advising and these committees and sort of understanding some of the systems that exist on these campuses. And it sounds like we're mostly talking about students who are juniors or seniors or in a position to think about medical school applications in the very near future. Um, But as you're talking about this, I'm sort of thinking about freshmen and sophomores who might want to be familiar with the pre-health advising on their campus and in a traditional setting could be knocking on doors, making connections with teachers, et cetera. They can't necessarily do that here. What might you say a student who's in the first half of their college career should do in terms of starting to get their ducks in a row for applications to medical school later on down the road? Still reaching out to pre-health advising. Um, (laughs) I am going to circle back to that because it is such a process to get to the point to apply to medical school. The classes Mm -hmm. that you take, the experiences that you have to have, some of that curricular advising has to go through the pre-health advisor because, you know, I know of at least one school in the U.S. that makes you take something like five or six chemistry classes just to get to orgo and figuring out how to fit that in. Um, your pre-health advisor can also help you brainstorm the activities you can do now, which is certainly something that we can talk about, right? How those um, first and second year students in college might be able to engage now virtually, but they may also have some ideas for you or ways to and then take what you're doing now and hopefully in the fall when everybody is hopefully back on campus, how yeah. can you then take that and make it something that's in person, something that translates into, you know, a, a full-blown pre-health experience. Um, but certainly, you know, I do think in some ways it all goes back to the pre-health advisor because they can really help you establish that. Um, 
yeah. that path for you. Mm-hmm. No, I, I appreciate that insight because I think it is, it is true that every, every person who's working on something that has been disrupted here is trying to consider new ways Mm-hmm. to help achieve the same goals that they had previously. And that's going to include pre-health advisors who are starting right. to think about, all right, how can we help students to get involved, mm-hmm. to engage with their communities, to help support their medical school applications later on down the road? And so they're going to have some really good ideas. Um, what about some ideas that you have? I mean, we, we sort of talked about, you know, taking on a little bit more is part of, I think, what people who want to be doctors just do anyway. Right. Um, yes. And they're limited, certainly, by what they're able to do right now. There's not right. going to be the same kind of shadowing and volunteering mm-hmm. and research opportunity as there would be previously. Yeah. So what can students do now to start to show that they have both the capacity and the commitment to be medical students later on down the yeah. road? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think first, and I think we always come back to this, you you need to consider your level of exposure that you feel comfortable with. And that makes sense for your situation and for people in your life. So always coming back to what can I actually be doing now, as opposed to what do I feel like I should be doing now? Um, I think that first, you know, start with your home community, wherever that home community is, right? Whether or not you're actually at your home, or if you're still living off campus somewhere near where, where you're living, what is your community, right? So Small things can make a huge impact, you know, tutoring, connecting with elderly, reconnecting with organizations that maybe you worked with before during high school. Volunteer match can be a great um, opportunity. And then think about the skills and interests that you do have and explore opportunities, right? You might be able to help statewide with a medical reserve corps, depending upon the skills that you have. Um, Some states are expanding their pool of contract tracers. Um, You know, if you're interested in international work, there's certainly stuff there around Amnesty International, UN UN Volunteer Corps. There are all sorts of things like that that are available to students. Um, And so I think identifying what is your skill set, what are you able to help in that fight? Because I think that students who are pre-med, who are thinking medical school, are the ones who really feel like they should be jumping in and who really want to be helping out. And so just really thinking about what are those opportunities and maybe it's asking medical professionals that you know, what would be helpful? How can we help looking around your community for a need and seeing where you can step in and help? All of those things I think are helpful. One, for you to be thinking about, is medicine the right direction for me? Yes. So they'll help your yes. community and will be something that you'll be able to talk about in medical school interviews and in applications, you know, what were you able to contribute? And I don't think it's about exactly what you're doing, but that you're doing something within what you're able to do that's going to matter for those applications. One of the things that has been so remarkable through this, the, the entirety of this crisis is just the, um, the sense of, I don't know, duty, commitment, however you want to describe it that you see from healthcare professionals as sort of just, this is my job mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm committed to it. And so I think, you know, getting a little bit of a sense of that as a prospective medical school student is really interesting, um, considering is that something that I would step into? Would I feel similarly to these current professionals in this space? There's a great opportunity, I think, to reflect on the meaning of that experience for you. Yeah, and I really recommend journaling. I know that not everybody is really into that idea. But really much of the medical school application process is about reflecting on your motivations for medical school. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, students are getting a really good look at this, even if it's from afar. You know, there are doctors that I know that are being engaged in areas that are so not within their specialized field. Um, and I think that it's okay if at the end of the day, you look back on your journaling and realize that you don't want to be a doctor. That's totally fine. To realize that maybe you're more enamored of policy, that's fine. It's hard to shed that pre-med identity, but it's absolutely fine if you realize that this is not the profession for you or that maybe you want to go with nursing or PT, OT, other allied health fields, right? Maybe doctor isn't right, but likewise, it could be another calling for you. And I think that's absolutely fine. And I think that's part of that reflection that you need to do to be prepared to apply to medical school. Yeah, if nothing else, I think that this this period of time allows for a lot of reflection and journaling has value, not just in the engagement of that thought process, but also <clears throat> sort of engaging with writing, thinking about things that you're, you might use for an essay later on when you're applying to medical school. So 
you know, consider written work as being really valuable, I think, in this case. Now, we've talked, you know, quite a bit about, um, you know, current college students. Um, I'm curious, uh, before we turn into maybe a couple of things for current high school students, do you have some recommendations for reading? Um, You know, there, there is also time, not just to journal, but also to sit down with a good book. Yes. What might you recommend from a reading standpoint here? Yeah, there are a couple, and it gives really good insights into the medical professor. Um, I really, I, I read The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down by Anne Fadiman. Um, I do want to say that I'm probably massacring people's names, so I apologize for that. Um, there are three other books that I recommend. The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks by mm-hmm. Rebecca Sloat, Being Mortal by Atul Gawande, and My Own Country by Abraham Brigaze. Um, I think that all four of those are really good starting points for exploring the medical profession. And certainly there are other books out there that could really help students um, get an insight into the medical profession. That's fantastic. And, and I think a great place to, um, to remind students that there are those opportunities out there. Before we turn over to the next segment and, and you know, get ready to talk about the next topic, I, I do want to ask you, most of our listeners have students in high school. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what we're discussing here might not be relevant, relevant to them just yet. Um, any sort of high, um, you know, high altitude tips that you would give for students in high school who want to become doctors? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the journaling and reflecting, if you are seriously considering that, I think that's helpful for any point of the high school um, to be thinking about that. I think that much of what we talked about can be scaled down to the high school level. So, you know, maybe you don't have the skill set to volunteer for medical reserve corps, but you can help out in your community in a lot of different ways that are some maybe a little bit more seriously medical and some of them maybe those softer skills. So I think seeing where you can help, where you can use whatever skills and interests you have to help your community, that's going to help you prepare for medical school, for college, to become the adult that you're going to be. I think all of those can come together. That's great. And thank you so much, Lauren. I, I think, you know, I think it's a challenging time for everyone, but there are special challenges for those who are in healthcare and those who are striving to make it their career. So we really appreciate your advice today. Thanks for having me. Of course. Now, when we come back, we'll be exploring the move to pass fail grades and the impact it might have on college admission this fall. So we'll see you after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show. Now, over these last few weeks, um, many different institutions have had to scramble to come up with new policies on the fly. High schools are no different. I would say that 
among the dozen or so juniors I'm working with right now, I've heard of about a dozen different approaches to grading for this spring. Uh, joining me to help unpack some of the details is my old pal, Tova Tolman. Hey, Tova, welcome to the show. Old pal. Thanks, Ian. My old pal. Yeah, I, don't, I was trying to think of an adjective to describe you. But anyway, like it's it. great to be able to see you today. And, and that's a good reminder for our listeners that they can always navigate to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash college coach, if they want to see the faces behind the voices. Okay, Tova, pass fail. Seems simple. Is it? Ooh, I feel like it was, you're asking me a trick question. Like, yeah. True, false, pass, fail. Uh, it is pretty simple. You either pass the course or you fail the course. Is this That's a right. trick question? Simple. Well, it's, so it's a simple yeah. concept, right? Um, yep. But I think that when we are used to grades, courses, all of these things sort of coming together when it comes to the college admission process, um, there are certainly big questions when we have something that disrupts it like this. Um, so let's just sort of start with some common approaches that we're seeing schools take. Describe a little bit about what it means for a school to go pass fail in this context sure. and why they might be doing it. Well, there's a little crazy thing going on right now. I don't know if you've heard a lot, a lot of students okay. have yeah. switched to online learning, right? So they're home. They are not in school. They're not with their teachers. They don't have their normal resources. They don't have their labs. They don't have maybe half the facilities that the school has. And the schools are trying to recognize and acknowledge that these students are working with uh, a few less, fewer resources, fewer tools in their tool belts. And it perhaps would be unfair to expect students to maintain the same level of performance. And maybe if we removed the severe grading scale of A versus A minus versus B, B plus versus B, and we just said, hey, just, just get your work done and don't focus on the grade, but just be present. And we took grades out of the picture. Maybe there's a little less stress, a little less anxiety for these students. So I think probably the most common approach I've seen for schools, although you're right, 12 students, 12 different uh, variations, yep. uh, is some version of an abnormal grading scale for the second semester of junior year or, or the, whatever year they're in right now. Right. And, and I think that's probably the most common approach I've seen is, is just schools saying wholesale, this semester is going to be pass-fail. Um, but there are some other sort of funky policies. I talked to a student yesterday in Massachusetts who said that his first quarter was going to be pass-fail, but then the second quarter, if they did all their work, they would get an A. Yeah. And if they didn't turn in like one assignment, they would get a pass. And then there was like a fail. And I was like, that sounds great. Um, that's really yeah. easy. Sure. There's also, we've heard of some A versus incomplete dichotomies yeah. where it's like you either get an A or you get an incomplete for the class. Sure. Um, is it important for students to understand how their specific high school's policy is going to be interpreted at the schools they choose to apply? Or is that something that ultimately gets shouldered by their high school guidance counseling office when they advocate for the student in the application? The latter. And the guidance counselors here are doing just that. They are working to make sure that they are advocating for these students, setting them up for some for success, and really making sure that the colleges will understand what choices they made and what options the students had. Uh, I would spend less energy worrying what the college colleges will think or see or understand and more energy thinking about how can I engage in my schoolwork in this new and exciting way. That's right. That's right. Now, there, but there are some cases where we are seeing that students have choices, right? So yeah. if you're sort of in a, just a situation where it's pass fail and you have no control over it, I think it's something that you shouldn't worry about. Nope. You can't worry about it. Let's just let it go. Um, but there are some situations where school districts are saying, hey, would you rather have a grade or take pass fail and leaving it up to the students? How does a student go about making a decision uh, in that kind of situation? Sure. I would talk to your guidance counselor, see what advice they have for you. I think a, a broad generalization you might want to try and apply is if you have been doing pretty well thus far, let's say you've been uh, maintaining an A to the point where the disruption began, and you get a pass after that, the colleges are going to assume you continued at the level you were at. Let's say you were on an upward trend, though, 
and the second semester was going so much better for you. You started out maybe with a C and you were steadily working with your teacher, working to improve, working to better your grade. And now all of a sudden, when you could have turned that C into an A, you don't have that opportunity to. In that situation, I'd ask for the grade for sure, because this is your opportunity to improve, to show that upward trend, to show that resiliency in this very difficult time. And if you have the option, if you can be better in your situation, take advantage of it. Yeah, you really want to look at the full spectrum of what your high school performance has been to date and then sort of look at, you know, does this help me? I was in sort of a really interesting situation with a student I'm I'm working with in California, and he was very concerned about his school going past fail, but he'd had all A's up until this semester. And when we actually did the GPA calculation, we found that if he had received grades this semester, his GPA would have been lower, hmm. even if they were all A's than if he had not received grades, just because of the nature of the UC GPA calculation and the bonus points. So it was this very funky scenario where it's like, actually, this won't help you um, because your bonus points have already been fully allocated to the other areas. So, uh, you know, I think that students often will get caught up in thinking about my GPA, the the 10th place, you know, these decimal points, I'm a 4.4 or a 4.3. I'm a 3.7 or a 3.8. And those things are not particularly meaningful to college admission offices. They really want to see more about the full spectrum of what students have to report in terms of their performance. And we, so one of our colleagues actually was participating yesterday in a um, a webinar with the coalition, right? And there were a number of different schools that were participating here, admissions officers from those schools And they weighed in on some of these important questions that families have. I think most of their perspective was pretty comforting for a student who might be concerned. Uh, Any highlights that you want to share from schools from that webinar yesterday? The main piece that wasn't a direct quote from any of them that I took away was, we get it. This is not a normal situation. And you are in the same boat as everyone else. Do not panic. Do not freak out. Your guidance counselors will be communicating with us. Uh, We are never reviewing your transcripts in a vacuum. Your GPA is never a vacuum. All of this is going to be considered and taken holistically. That was kind of the main theme that I got. So that wasn't a direct quote? That that was just ad-libbed. Okay, gotcha. Um, anything in particular that we saw, I mean, I think you, you shared a couple of with, with me, um, mm-hmm. school saying that, you know, students are not going to be disadvantaged. Um, I think most directly when students will not be disadvantaged, Rutgers, students will not be disadvantaged by pass fail grades. This whole experience is completely outside of their control. High schools are scrambling. I'm not sure and, if that was paraphrased, perhaps. Yeah, and we got, um, we got an email from the admissions director at the University of Oregon mm-hmm. who said that pass-fail grades were not going to impact students, but they would be looking carefully at scenarios where it was A, incomplete, uh, because mm-hmm. they didn't want to take that A into the account of the GPA for just that set of schools okay. because they thought that that might be unfair for students who did not have the sure. A, incomplete dichotomy. Um, what about 12th graders? So, you know, we're sort of talking in the context of 11th graders, especially 10th right. graders, 9th graders. What about 12th graders who are graduating and they're worried about schools not accepting these final grades in order for them to be eligible yeah. to enroll in the fall? I actually think a lot of schools have uh, a site on their page already dedicated to this content. If you're an admitted student and you go to your school's enrolling student admitted student info page, I was just chatting with the mission officers at Fordham University yesterday, and they have a whole page on their enrolling student site dedicated to explaining and showing what we will do with your pass-fail grades. How do you get us your final transcript uh, working with students in that? Uh, At yesterday's webinar that our colleague attended, Middlebury also said something to that effect of, we have faith in our schools and the school districts that they are working incredibly hard on behalf of these students to make sure that they are graduating and finishing. They are going to work with students with these pass-fail grades with uh, completing different requirements. And again, these are unprecedented times and we're all looking to sort of help these students successfully persist forward. And no one is going to be looking to sort of disadvantage these students in any way, shape or form. So we're really focused here on sort of the the output of this process, right? You look at a transcript, mm-hmm. you've got A's and B's traditionally for the first couple of years, then you've got this sort of period of pass-fail. And we don't know how long this period may be. I think that it's very likely that schools, if they have to remain closed in the fall, are going to figure out a way to return to grades. Uh, they'll have more lead time, they'll have more of a heads up, 
they'll figure that out. One of the things that we're not talking about, though, is what this means from a student's perspective. So, you know, if I'm in a position where I am now taking all of my classes pass fail, mm-hmm. how do I approach my classes? Do I think about my my learning in a different way? Do I think about my assignments in a different way? Do I allow myself to take my foot off the gas in some ways? I mean, what would be your advice for students here, both in terms of the right thing to do, but also the most high utility thing for them to do if they're thinking about the college admission process, especially? I think this is an opportunity to remember that end game goal here and a student listening might say that that's not my end game goal, but the larger end game goal here of to find some sort of love of learning, right? I think that's why we're here. Uh, We talk about this in our elementary school curriculum, this idea of intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic. In extrinsic motivation, I'm motivated by that A, that teacher holding up the A, the A on the stamp of the page, the A on the report card. Ideally, Maybe we're working a little bit towards some element of a love of learning, a intellectual curiosity, some sort of academic thirst, the kind of thing that these colleges are after, right? It's not so much that they care about how many A's you have. Yes, but why? It's some sort of measure for your desire to master material, your curiosity, your desire to learn. If you're no longer going to be driven solely by the grade, maybe this is an opportunity to re-engage with the material in a way that excites you. Maybe you can not focus on that one little piece of the requirement, but dive in more completely to the piece that gets you really excited. And maybe that will spark a little bit more curiosity, a little bit more enthusiasm for the love of the learning. I think that's good. That's a good intrinsic argument. That works for me. I love intrinsic motivation. I didn't know that question was coming. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work for for everyone, right? And I think that even those who are considering this from an extrinsic standpoint, you can say, Look, if you're a junior, that teacher who you're now taking a class from online is still going to write your letter of recommendation. That's right. And that teacher is going to notice that ever since you moved to online learning, you have not been as communicative. You have not been turning in your homework on time. You have not been connecting. And as soon as that pass-fail announcement came, you took your foot off the gas. And that, if that's going to be somebody who has to advocate on your behalf, I think that you want to make sure that you're still putting your best foot forward. Um, there are also sort of, I would say that there is this building process. If you're a ninth or a 10th grader, you need to understand the content that you're learning right now to be able to be in a position to be successful next year, right? So if you sort of slack off in pre-calc because it's pass fail, then when you say calculus next year, it's going to be a struggle. You're going to be in trouble. (laughs) You're going to be in deep trouble. I would be in trouble taking calculus no matter what. But, um, I, I think for a lot of students that could be a real challenge, right? So some good things I think to keep in mind for students who might be saying, ah, you know, pass, fail, whatever, I'm going to pass. So let's look, look further on down the road. Um, are there any final tips, any other things that we pulled out of that webinar yesterday or other things that you would want to share with families who are looking at pass, fail and, and are concerned about this change? I think for the younger students uh, who are just starting out in high school, ninth, 10th graders, that upward trend, that four-year trend is always something that colleges are considering. So fret not. This is a break. You still have a lot of high school on the back end. Uh, it And those later grades will just become that much more important. And, and it may be exciting way. So like you said, build. Use this time to build. Yeah. Um, and I think the main piece that I just heard again and again from everyone that I speak with on the college side and that we heard from yesterday is don't stress. It's, it's going to be okay. Yeah, hard not to, but I, th- I think that's that's the best advice. Um, you know, there might be some more emphasis on other aspects of your high school career, but for now, let's try and and, and not stress um, and keep things as easy as possible. All right, Tova, for that segment, I will give you a grade of pass. It's really worried I was going to fail or at <laughs> least not get an incomplete. This, this feels good. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, n- definitely completed. Um, so thanks for coming on the show. Uh, always a pleasure. And for doing such uh, detailed research in advance as well. Sure thing. Bye. All right. For our final segment, we will be talking finance with a keen eye on how you can fund your college experience beyond your financial aid awards. So don't go away. (music) 
Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Everyone, welcome back to the show. So, so far today, we have talked about impacts on medical school admissions. We've talked about the effects of pass-fail on student GPAs and academic performance in the admission process. And of course, like we like to do for all of our radio shows is turn our attention now to college finance. So joining me, as you can see here on the screen, is my colleague from out east, Lori Peltier. Lori, hey, welcome to the show. Hi, Ian. I'm very happy to be here. I'm glad to have you. And today we are talking about funding your college choice beyond the aid offer that you might have gotten from your school of choice. And I think most students are in a position now, it's, it's May 7th, by the time this airs, it'll be May 14th. So most students have decided where they're going to attend. And there might be a little bit of wiggle room if they get an offer off a wait list, or maybe they're taking advantage of one of these extended enrollment deposits of June 1st. But I think it's most likely that, that students have sort of decided where they're going to go. Now, just to sort of set the parameters for the conversation here, when we say that we're talking about funding a college experience beyond the aid offer, I want to establish what that aid offer actually includes. So what are the things that we can sort of count on from a particular school before we look outside of that offer for new, new sources of funding? So to clarify, there's nothing you can really count on, but what a student could receive yeah. <laughs> is um, scholarship, okay. uh, grants, which are both free money that offsets the price, basically just discounts the price, uh, work study, which is a part-time job on campus for the student, um, and, and then student loans, which we'll talk about in a minute. But um, basically, scholarships and grants are the big discounter from the price. So hopefully, the student has received some of those. And so there's the sticker price minus their scholarships and grants. And that's what we're talking about funding. Gotcha. And you, and you can tell that Lori is the college finance expert because <laughs> I'm the dummy that said you can count on funding. <laughs> and she's the expert that says, well, hold on a second. You can't always count on that stuff. So, so let's talk about loans. I, I think that um, there are certainly lots of questions that um, families of seniors have now, probably more than ever, um, are coming your way. Um, let's just start with the very basics about borrowing money. So lots of families will borrow money to pay for college. What are the different types of loans that are going to be available to families that are looking to fund their education? There's basically four different categories of loans. The first one is the student loan, and that's mm -hmm. the one that you would see on your financial aid offer. If you fill out the FAFSA form, you will see a federal student loan on there. This loan is 100% in the student's name. Mm -hmm. 
And it's the only loan out there that's 100% in the student's name. Um, but it has a very low maximum that the student can borrow. As a freshman, they can borrow $5,500. Okay. So when you're looking at the cost of some of these schools, it's usually one of the loans they take, but it may not be a loan large enough to cover the balance that they're looking at. Um, so that's the first loan that's out there. It is a federal loan. It's very flexible. It's a very low interest rate. So we usually, if, if we had to make a recommendation, I would recommend that families start with that loan, but oftentimes they have to borrow more than that. Gotcha. So the, the second category is also a federal loan, but it's in the parent's name and it's called a PLUS loan, a federal parent PLUS loan. The PLUS loan um, comes from the federal government, so it has some flexibility and some benefits to it that other loans don't have. A parent does need to pass a credit check. They're not looking for a specific credit score. They're looking to make sure you don't have a bankruptcy or foreclosure, like a bad mark on your credit. And if you pass, you can then borrow as much as you need to cover the cost for one year. So once you've figured out how much the school is going to cost, minus any scholarships and grants and minus the student loan, um, you could borrow the full balance if you wanted to. The so third, go ahead. Can I jump in real quick? I'm just mm -hmm. sort of curious when we're talking about the student loan versus the plus loan is, is the student loan the best place to start because the interest rate tends to be lower than what you see with the parent loan? What's, what's the reason for the student loan to be that first mm -hmm. thing to look at? Yes, the interest rate is one of the reasons. The interest rate right now on a student loan for this year is 4%. Okay. On a parent loan, it's 7%. Okay, gotcha. And then the parent loan also has an origination fee of 4%. Okay. So it, it's a more expensive loan, but you can borrow more. Um, so the other thing about the student loan, um, you know, the parent could repay it. So you could take it, you know, but not obligate your child to pay it back. The parent could assist in the payback. It's also a way for the student to earn a credit history. Because it's in the student's name, if you wanted your child to start to build some credit for future purchases, that's one of the ways to do it. Gotcha. Okay. And I interrupted. You were going to say the third, the third kind of loan. So please right. continue. You know, I can't count, Ian. So <laughs> um, the, the third type of loan is what we call a private loan. And this is from an individual bank. Um, most of them are nationwide banks that offer these loans. And they call them student loans because they are in the student's name, but they have a cosigner. Mm -hmm. No bank is going to let a student borrow all this money on their own. So they mm -hmm. want an adult on there. It doesn't have to be the parent, but it should be an adult with a good credit score. The better the credit score of the cosigner, the better the interest rate you get. Mm -hmm. Where the federal loans have a set interest rate, everybody gets the same rate no matter what your credit history. The private loans will vary based on your credit history, your credit score. So if you have an excellent credit score, you could see a very low rate and they also offer fixed and variable rates. So they have a lot of different um, options for how to pay it back and what your interest rate might be. And again, the private loans, you can borrow as much as you need if you have to um, for the whole year. But both the student and that co-borrower are on the hook for that loan. So both of their credit scores are affected. If down the road, a mistake is made and payments are missed, both the student and that, that co-signer are going to have a bad mark on their credit. So, so the, the co-signer needs to be aware of how the student <laughs> plans to pay it back and just make sure that they're keeping tabs on right. maintaining right. payments as they go through the process. Right. Gotcha. And so I, f I find families who want the student to take more responsibility for their education sometimes do this private loan so that mm -hmm. the parents there is a backup. But if the student, you know, um, can afford to pay it, they will. It sounds like the the private loan process, it, it sounds very similar to like a home mortgage where you might qualify for a better rate or a larger mortgage based on your credit history. Yes. Private loans are fairly, so I guess you're working with a bank in, in both scenarios. So that right. makes sense. Though. Right. So when I talk to a family about a private loan, I can't guarantee them any interest rate. I have sure. to tell, you know, they will publish their ranges, but they won't guarantee you a rate until they check your credit. Understood. I see. And these three loans, so the student loan is obviously specific to education. The PLUS loan is, is a federal loan. You've got these private loans that are also called student loans. Mm -hmm. But what about loans that are not specific to education? Are there mm -hmm. other things that families can go out and borrow? And what are some of the you know, pros and cons of doing that? Right. So I'll talk about those in a minute because I wanted to get to my number four loan. Oh, there's a fourth. <laughs> oh, yes. I didn't even know. I thought it was just going to be three. 
So the fourth type right. of loan is a state-sponsored loan. So there are okay. some states that offer loans. Um, for example, I know New Jersey and Massachusetts are two of them. So you, if you live in those states or go to school in those states, you can get a, a loan, an educational loan from those states. And then a few of the colleges, usually more towards the Ivy League schools, have their own loans. So if they have a family who needs to borrow, um, some of the Ivy League schools have loans specifically from their institution to the family. And those are very low interest rates, like 2% or something. So if you have that option, definitely look into that. And in answer to your your question about loans that are not specific to education, um, yes, you could do a home equity line of credit. Hmm. You could refinance your mortgage. So some families are finding that the rates of a loan tied to their home are a much better rate than they are on the education loan. But there's also a risk that goes with that because if you don't make your payments, you could start, you could jeopardize losing your home. Gotcha. Um, because you're, um, and then the credit unions, oftentimes the credit unions will offer some personal loans at low interest rates that families might want to check out. So there's almost too many options, but it's a good <laughs> thing that they have options because everyone's financial situation is different and they want these options to research and find the one that's best for them. Is it, is it fair to say that as you're considering these options, you want to look at um, the total amount that you're eligible for, the rate, uh, the interest rate for the loan, mm-hmm. um, and maybe other stipulations um, that are associated with that loan or possible collateral that might be included in that loan? Does that seem like the, the three things to look at? Uh, not so much collateral, but the... Okay. Um, the repayment options, you know, what okay. happens if, you know, we are all experiencing it now, what if you get, you're unemployed, can you put the loans on hold? Or are they always an obligation? Or are they any flexibility there? Um, so that's one thing to look at on the federal loans, they have a clause where I hate to even talk about it, if the parent or the student, whichever one is the borrower is uh, permanently disabled or deceased, the loan gets written off. Mm. And unfortunately, there are situations where that comes into play. So if if that's important to you to have that kind of cushion to fall back on, then um, then you would want to stick with the federal loans. Understood. I see. And and so and that's a great sort of reminder that that repayments is always something to consider. I think that you know I certainly just made this mistake. I think a lot of borrowers will make this mistake. It's just sort of what money can I get and what's the rate, but not thinking necessarily about what the repayment process looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and you had, you had suggested that we could talk a little bit about deferring the cost without the accrual of interest on a loan. What does that right. look like? Are there ways to do that? There are. It's not a long deferment. Uh, what we're talking about here are monthly payment plans. So majority of colleges, I would say 90 to 95% of the colleges that I've dealt with, do offer some kind of a monthly payment plan. So rather than paying a lump sum of tuition and fees in August and another big lump sum in January, you could join a monthly payment plan and spread out those payments over 10 or 12 months. During that time, that 12-month time, there's no interest accruing. So there may be a small fee to join the payment plan get you all signed up um, and they check your credit for that as well, but they don't charge you any interest. So if you can afford to pay on a monthly basis and and spread it out over one year, uh, that's a way to do it without any interest accruing and borrowing a loan. And one other thing to remember is that the schools don't care how you piece it together. They really don't. As long as you've paid the bill on time before Mm -hmm. the student steps foot on campus, you can do scholarships and 529s and savings and payment plans and loans. You could do seven different options and piece them together to gotcha. make up your solution. There's no one solution. How, how do people keep track of all of those sources? I mean, is it just sort of like each person has their own system and figures it out? I mean, how, how do you recommend that families sort of keep? You know, it, it, that's a good point. I do think families need to keep track and then and, and keep a good eye on it. I have seen some horror stories where a family might borrow from one loan freshman year and a different loan sophomore year and a third loan, you know, mm-hmm. so then by they're in repayment, they're missing payments because they don't realize they have so many balls in the air, like which one is due and, and the, who they borrowed from. So I do um, think it's something to stay on top of with maybe an Excel spreadsheet or some kind of a chart that says, you know, this is what we have to do. This is how we're covering it. And this, and it's semester by semester. So, um, so it's, it is a challenge project. 
Yeah. And then, you know, back up your files, make sure you've got a copy and an external hard drive or saved in the cloud or whatever yeah. to be safe. Yeah. Um, not slips of paper in a file cabinet, right? Like we yeah. want, we want to make sure we've got some, some redundancies there. Um, right. Final thing I wanted to sort of ask is what are some financing tips that families might not consider? What are some things that they're mm-hmm. usually don't know and they have to come to an expert like you to figure it out? Well, I do think you have to think a little create creatively, um, you know, turn over every stone, look through the sofa cushions. Is there any loose change in the sofa that we could pull to pay for college? Um, does the student have savings? You know, a lot of people are, they, they save money or they give their child financial gifts throughout the year, but then they're like, no, I don't want them to pull from that to pay for college. Why not? What are you saving it for? Why borrow a loan if the student's sitting on $5,000 in their bank account? Mm-hmm. So, um, so look at all the different resources, the student savings, the student earnings, and those expenses that the family might have that are ending. So maybe a car payment or a credit card has been paid off. So now you have that monthly payment you were making to the car loan, pay it to the college um, or the expenses that a student has while they're in high school, athletic fees, SAT prep, driver's education, or private high school or contributions to your 529 plan. There's a lot of expenses in high school that families are shelling out that you may want to redirect towards the college expense. And, and, you know, that's a great actually reminder of a lot of those expenses are not happening right now because programs mm-hmm. have been canceled. There aren't sign-up fees for spring mm-hmm. sports, et cetera. And so maybe if you're a parent of a student who's in high school, you might think about reallocating some of that money to mm-hmm. savings or to 529s or whatever it may be so right. that you're more prepared when the bill comes due and, and you've got these, you know, this, this money that you can fall back on. Um, right. Who knows? Um, Laurie, uh, thanks a lot for, for coming on the show and, and making sure that we're both counting correctly. I'm sorry to I cut <laughs> off that okay. fourth option. Yes. Um, so that does it uh, for another episode of Getting In. Uh, we're enjoying the opportunity to come to you each week, both over the airwaves and on video. You get to see us. It's great. If you're enjoying listening, don't hesitate to leave us a review on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts. The more five-star reviews we get, the more likely people are to find our good advice, to hear from people like Lori, who are great experts. So help us in reaching as many students and families as possible. Give us a review. Uh, Next week's show, we'll turn the attention over to younger students. So we're going to talk about tips for ninth graders who are preparing to map out their high school courses. We'll talk about getting started on extracurricular activities and even ways to start thinking about the saving and paying components of college for early high school years. So you won't want to miss it. Until then, you should mask up, wash your hands, keep that distance. You got this. Have a great, great week. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.